Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. It gives me great pleasure to sit in his chair here for our eminent research colleague, Ian Hall. I don't have his bio in front of me, but as we all know, Ian has published scores and scores of really good articles and many, many fine books. He's an expert on Indian foreign policy and many other things, and today he's going to speak to us about his paper in progress, The Hindu Nationalist Theory of International Politics. Thank you for that very kind introduction. I'm going to talk today yes, about a paper that I wrote for a conference a little while ago that actually grew out of a book project that failed. So <laughs> I was writing a book about this for about a year and a half, and then it just wouldn't go. I could not get it to pass the sort of 35,000 words, <laughs> and I just couldn't do it. So I, I failed, and I decided, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to see whether it works better as an article, and then when I've done an article, maybe it'll lead off. <laughs> maybe I can then expand it out into a book. So, But anyway, here we are. I thought I'd put up that slide there. Lou will know the group that's put that up there. That's a poster or some of the graffiti that was put up at JNU in Delhi. It's obviously a leading university, leading research university in Delhi. It has an extremely active student body. And, and until quite recently, I think they've banned, actually, the graffiti across the campus. Until quite recently, it was notorious for having this wonderfully vibrant graffiti. And I've got quite a lot of photographs of it. I suspect Lou probably does as well and others that have visited there. And this is a picture that I took actually about 10 years ago that was put up by the Hindu Nationalist Student Union, the ABVP. And it was the world according to India. And you probably can't sort of read all of the things that are on that slide, but it has some things about Britain. So it says England used to colonise us, now bad at cricket. America, we all hate it, but we all want to go there, and so on. There's a kind of, there's a brown bit right in the middle there, which is sort of Afghanistan and all that sort of thing, and it's, it says basically wars happen here. And then there's Pakistan, obviously, and there's India, where it says, you know, we're, we're the best at thinking that we're the best. Unfortunately, down the bottom, the, the sort of yellow blobby bit on the bottom right-hand corner is Australia, and it says cricket and racists. <laughs> It's quite kind of brutal. <laughs> so there's so much of this kind of stuff that's done. And I, was, I did spend a little bit of time kind of taking photographs, particularly of the Indian nationalist graffiti there, because it kind of gives you a, a really interesting insight into the kinds of messages that they're putting out to their student body on campus. There's a big contrast between this and some of the socialist or communist student groups on campus as well. The, the propaganda, the, the, the graffiti that's done is very, very different. Anyway, so I really like that illustration. I'm sorry the photograph isn't better and not more readable, but I kind of I thought I'd put it up there. Okay, so what am I going to talk about today? I've got to be... So, so what's the justification for the project in the first place? I mean, not just the fact that, obviously, Hindu nationalists are in power in India. Bharati Janta Party, the BJP in Delhi, is obviously the dominant part player within the coalition government in Delhi. Narendra Modi has been the Prime Minister since 2014. And this government is arguably a more Hindu nationalist government than the earlier ones of Atal Bihari Vajpayee's BJP-led coalitions between 1998 and 2004. The BJP was then the dominant coalition partner, but they had an agenda for governance which was put together by the different coalition partners that actually excluded some aspects of Hindu nationalist political, the kind of traditional political agenda. So what's the project for doing all of this? I mean, two things. One is that we've got a big and growing 
literature on Hindu nationalist political and social thought to which Lou and others have contributed. It's a very fast-growing literature. Practically every three months or so, there's a new book that's published on this. So keeping up with the literature itself is kind of intrinsically difficult. So, But we've got this growing literature on this work that was done mainly from the 1920s onwards, developing Hindu nationalist ideology. But almost all of it focuses on what the Hindu nationalists intend for India. And also, a lot of it focuses on what they intend for Indian society, because Hindu nationalists traditionally think of politics as being a bit demeaning and grubby, and actually things that they really shouldn't be involved in. And actually, that politics is unnecessary, that if you get the social settings right, you don't need to have politics at all. So there's no need for politics because there is a unity, an organic unity that lies within society, latent in society. And if you can get the right structures for society that allows that organic unity to flourish and to bind and to be obvious and so on, you don't need politics at all. And then the other thing, because the other justification for this is that now got Hindu nationalist politics in power. So as I said before, the government between 98 and 2004, there were coalition-led governments that Vajpayee led, but the, the agenda for governance was not actually particularly inflected by Hindu nationalism because the coalition partners wouldn't stand for it. So they cobbled together this agenda for governance, which is actually quite different from a traditional Hindu nationalist manifesto, if you like. But today, 2014, the BJP, since 2014, has been could rule in its own right, although it does rule within the coalition, and the agenda for governance has been much more Hindu nationalist domestically and arguably also internationally. But I think we've got to look too at, so what do they think about international relations? That's what I'm really interested in, in this particular context. And why might that matter? Well, they actually do think quite a lot of interesting things about international politics, and not just that they want to redraw maps, for example. So that's a map of Akan Bharat, which is undivided India, and kind of greater India. And as you can see, it stretches from the borders of Afghanistan all the way through to a border with Papua New Guinea. You can actually get maps of Akan Bharat that run all the way into northern Australia. There is a belief that northern Australian Aboriginal peoples are linked linguistically, culturally and racially to Indians. There is a theory about that, but certainly all of Southeast Asia and then obviously also Tibet and large parts of China are considered part of this undivided India, this kind of big cultural space. So why does it matter? Not just because they put out what are, frankly, in some contexts, quite inflammatory maps like that, but also this particular government, the BJP-led government, has been trying to recast the terminology of Indian foreign policy in Hindu nationalist terms, trying to use the language drawn from Hindu nationalist thinking to describe what they're doing. They've dropped a lot of the language that came before that, so not only do they not really mention words like non-alignment, which are very much associated with Nehru's legacy, they also have dropped some of the, the euphemisms for non-alignment, like strategic autonomy, has disappeared from the lexicon, and instead they've replaced it with sort of Sanskritized terms. So they'll talk about samvad, for example, as dialogue rather than diplomacy. So they'll use samvad, they'll use saman, they use all these Sanskritized words in order to describe what they think they're doing. And then there's also in the background of all of this too this kind of you know, interest in non-Western international theory which is a disciplinary interest but still one that I think is important. Okay, so what am I talking about in this paper then? So I'm going to define theory really, really a lot of both political theorists and political scientists would not like this description of theory but I'm going to go back to Martin White's description of theory as being simply a tradition of speculation and tradition is a really important term in all of this. There has to be kind of a demonstrable passing on of ideas 
generation to generation, a development of thinking about something. And it's really speculation about relations between, well, I say they're organised political communities. And then, okay, what do I mean by the other things here? So Hindu nationalism, well, the first time I gave this paper, there was quite a conversation, actually, about how we define Hindu nationalism and whether or not we should have a broader definition of Hindu nationalism and then a narrower de definition of Hindutva thinking, which animates the BJP, the, the Modi's background, and also the Rastriya Swamsevak Sang, the RSS that sits behind them, which I'll come on to in a minute. So I'm going to sort of open up this by saying that you can be a Hindu nationalist without subscribing to Hindutva, which itself is a kind of difficult claim to make, but I think necessary. So the Hindu nationalism being claimed that India, or, or we can call it Hindustan or Bharat, uh, would have political sovereignty, but also that it reflects Hindu values. And of course then the question is, what are those values? And the dominant group of Hindu nationalists subscribe to this Hindutva agenda, loosely translated as Hinduness, following Savarkar, who coined the term. Actually, I found that Hindutva actually predates Savarkar. Tilak uses it in the late 19th century once or twice, but not in a very prescriptive way. Okay, so who are we talking about? So that's Gowalkar over there, who was the head of the RSS for a long period of time. So I'm sorry, a bunch of names there. When I was doing this project, though, what I wanted to do was... So methodologically, I just simply went through what Hindu nationalists today say about past figures. So how do you establish the tradition in methodological terms? What I did was simply go and see who they were referring to now. Which thinkers are they referring to? Which thinkers do they think are important? Where is the tradition? And then move backwards, which, you know, as a historian I find a bit objectionable, but this is the way that I did this. The interesting thing, though, is that what happens is that contemporary Hindu nationalists are very keen to appropriate ideas from Hindu reformers and revivalists in the 19th century who you can't really properly call Hindu nationalists in a strict sense, let alone thinkers who endorse the conception of Hinduness that emerges in the 1920s. So they appeal to these older thinkers because they are authorities and also because they are national figures, and so they're more unifying figures, and they appropriate ideas as well as their names from these figures, and they cherry-pick to a degree their ideas and their agendas, and then they kind of put them back within this framework of a much stricter conception of Hindu nationalism, which, as I say, there emerges in the 1920s. There are organic connections between the Hindu reformers and revivalists who were trying to, in the beginning to the middle of the 19th century, trying to deal with the kind of intellectual and religious assault on Hinduism which had happened as a result of the encounter with the British, but also with the encounter with Islam before that. So the British kind of perform two tasks. One is that they actually go and start to codify and archive and catalogue Hindu texts in a way that hadn't really been done, at least by Westerners, before that. And so they kind of create this corpus of writings and they also then try and historicise them to try and put them into a chronological order, which is an interesting exercise. And the Orientalists at the end of the the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, do this. And then after that, once the East India Company is forced into allowing missionaries into India, they were very sceptical about that prior to this because they knew how problematic that would become if they allowed Christian missionaries into India. They recognised that they might not be able to make money like bandits as they had been doing prior to that because it would cause social unrest. 
than the assault of the conversions beginning in the 19th century. So you get these reformers and revivalists trying to essentially find what is the essence of Hinduism that they can focus on, which are, where are the core texts, because they want to textualize Hinduism, which is kind of an interesting activity in itself, and then they want to kind of purify it and remove all of the sort of extraneous and problematic aspects of Hinduism and boil it down to an acceptable core, which can then be taken forward. And all of those thinkers there, so the, uh, and all of those movements, the Brahma Samaj, Arya Samaj, and then people like Vivekananda and Aurobindo and all those people, and Gandhi to an extent, although you know, he's a kind of syncretic religious thinker, they're all trying to do this tidying up of Hinduism to safeguard it and then to take it forward. What I argue in the paper is that Hindu nationalism extends this project, but in a slightly different sort of way. And they pick bits from it. So that's Vivekananda up there, who's Narendranath Datta in his original avatar. That was his original name. And then he, for a variety of different reasons that I won't go into now, becomes a monk and a follower of this particular tradition. Anyway, what do they do? Well, they firstly, they textually ground Hinduism. I should say Hindu, not Hindi, sorry. They textually ground it in the Vedas and then in the great epics. They oppose certain practices which are endemic in India. So that includes widow burning in some parts of India. They include, this is a very controversial topic, child marriage. Some support it, some don't. There's a lot of controversy within the reform movement. They start to question issues of caste and its justifiability, and then also the question of untouchability and so on. They want to, but they also want to philosophize this religion, which is practically based for most people. So they want to try and turn this into a much more ethereal, like, you know, philosophical tradition of thinking that will allow it to then confront Christianity, Islam, and other world religions. They also introduced this idea that somehow or another that Hinduism, although it's not superior to any other religion, appreciates the unity and diversity that there is in human life and that there are many paths to God and so on. That Hinduism's unique insight is this recognition that truth is one and there are many paths to that truth. And therefore that Hinduism become a reconciler of other traditions and philosophies and so on. And then lastly, they're also convinced, as the reformers and revivalists were, that Hinduism was dying. Dying as a, as a race. So we get this discussion of Hinduism, of Hindus as a dying race at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. So they pick up on all these different strands. There's lots more strands in the reformer and revivalist movements, but these form the basis of what goes into then Hindu nationalism. And they really were getting the 1920s something a little bit different. And it's really Savaka and there's multi-volume biography being published of him at the moment by Vikram Sampath. So Savaka, who in Hindutva, who is a Hindu, engages in this act of invention, and we all know about invented traditions and nationalism. He acts in this act of invention. So he wants to say that who are the Hindus? They are a kind of mix of the Aryans who migrate from Central Asia into India and the indigenous people that were already living there before, that they're bound together by what he calls this Sanskriti culture, Bharatiya culture, that they're all bound together by one culture, which, you know, is demonstrated in food and then cultural practices and so on. And that crucially, all of the people who are not identifying as Hindus within India are also partake of this Hindu-ness. So if you live within the borders of greater India, but you are a Muslim or a Sikh or a Buddhist or whatever, 
you are also a Hindu for Savarka. You also have elements of Hindu-ness, even though you don't realize it, and even though you might object to it, and even though you might reject it, you are fundamentally still a Hindu. And at some point or another, you're going to have to return to the fault. Now, this actually involves, this involves some mental gymnastics, some kind of traditional gymnastics, if you like, as well, too, because Hinduism doesn't have a conversion you know, tradition. But they introduced this idea of shuddhi, and they introduced this idea of homecoming, Garvapsi idea gets introduced into this, in which eventually Muslims, they're going to realize that their Hinduness is going to shine through and they're going to return to the fold. He builds this on a racial basis and on a cultural basis, and he actually then pulls Hindu nationalism away from religion itself. And Savarkar's relationship with the religion of Hinduism itself was a bit attenuated, just like Modi's was too. Modi claims he's not a religious man, even though he's a Hindu nationalist. Anyway, and so he inspires, of course, the creation of the Rastri Swam Savik Sangh, the RSS in 1925, and all of that, which I can talk about in more detail. So what do they say then about international relations? I'm skipping over quite a lot of things as we go. The first thing is we've got to look at, so what are the units here? What are the units, what are the, the political communities that they're interested in? And what's interesting about Hindu nationalist thought is that there are two units in which they're really interested, but neither of them are sovereign states. So the Western international system that is sovereign state-based is one that they fundamentally reject. Firstly, because the units that really matter are cultures or civilizations, and these sorts of ideas permeate Hindu reformer and revivalist ideas, so that a lot of the discussion about difference, and about mediating difference, and about relations, and about political relations, in the reformer text and the revivalist text are reduced to cultural difference. So when they want to try and explain, if when Vivekananda, for example, wants to try and explain the differences between the British and Indians, he reduce it to their food practices, you know, because they eat meat, they must be more aggressive, vegetarians less aggressive, this kind of thing. So it's, everything gets reduced down to cultural differences, and the political differences, in a sense, are kind of epiphenomenal, or can be fundamentally explained by these basic cultural practice differences. And that has led... At, Latterly, in the last sort of 10, 15 years or so, to some, a lot of Hindu nationalists actually accepting this concept of the civilizational state, which comes out of China. Zhang Weiwei, Chinese hypernationalist, has introduced this idea of the civilizational state, contrasting the civilizational state with, say, something like the United States. So the civilizational state has a kind of cultural unity to it, which gives it power and authority, which are kind of multicultural, I'm using his words here, mongrel state, like the United States does not have, because it's, it's made up of lots of different people, and it's sort of fundamentally divided, and therefore it's not a civilizational state, and therefore over time it will lose its power. And you can see the Hindu nationalists love this idea, because it affirms their idea of Akan Bharat. Then the other thing, though, is that there's a more fundamental rejection of the sovereign state, which comes from Savarkar, but especially from Upadhyaya. He's really fascinating. His thinking in integral humanism is particularly fascinating because he rejects social contract theory quite overtly. And actually, Gowalker, prior to this, does this too. They actually explicitly address Hobbes and argue that Western liberals have got the whole idea of the formation of societies, formation of states wrong, that starting with atomized individuals and then building a polity on that basis is the wrong way to proceed. Instead, what you have to do is accept that Vedic insight that life is an integrated whole, there is a oneness to everything, to all living things, and that 
your polity must reflect that oneness and you can't, a sovereign state simply doesn't do that because it's explicitly about reconciling differences between atomized individuals. So it's a kind of fundamental political theory idea there. And then he goes on to say as well, a true rashtra, which we can translate as nation state or kingdom, it's a bit difficult to do, should be connected to its soul and the only way it's going to be connected to its soul is by accepting that organic unity and then they can follow their dharma after that, the right way. First, the rejection of sovereign states. And then secondly, and that's Arjuna, by the way, being told by Krishna to follow his dharma and get into battle and go and defend his community and fight and kill and everything else, even though he doesn't want to. What else do they think about an international order? Well, here, and I think there's been quite a lot of focus on this in the literature that we do have on Hindu nationalists thinking about international politics. Here, they sound like crude realists. The world international politics is red in tooth and claw. This is the expression that Savarka himself borrows from Tennyson, that people are mired in this parochialism and selfishness and so on, and that the law of the jungle prevails, is the way that Gowalka puts it in Bunch of Thoughts. This looks like crude realism to us. This looks like Hobbes again. And how do they recommend that India should get out of this, should manage this predicament? Well, they must be strong. They must follow their dharma in the same way as Krishna tells Arjuna to do in the Mahabharata. And they've got to, you know, if necessary, take up the sword and defend their community and if necessary, kill and be killed in order to flourish in this incredibly unpleasant environment. But interestingly, too, there's a divergence, there's a move away from this idea. So once they say, yes, we've got to be strong, there's an emphasis not on state power, because they're very fearful of state power and of military power, but instead there's this emphasis on building up manly men of character. So this is about social power, and it's about masculine power, but it's not about state power, necessarily. So we've got to create strong characters who are capable of defending their communities and do so selflessly. And in any case, all of this is somewhat transitory. This is actually quite hard to detect in the texts. Sitting behind a lot of this commentary about the way the world is, is this understanding or is this assumption that we are living through the Kali Yuga, that we are in the worst of all possible worlds at the moment, but there will be another phase of history that is not dominated by Kali, by bloodshed, by warfare, by nastiness, though there will be another phase. And that India, of course, has a particular role to play in translating us all out of the Kali Yuga into something different. And there can be this Jagad Guru, or there can be a Vishwa Guru, this be the spiritual guides of the world, and that India's aim, its great achievement in the world, is going to be to lead the world out of this Kali Yuga, out of this situation that is today. So there is a strange tension between a kind of Hobbesian interpretation of the way the world is and this idea that eventually all of this manliness and power and bloodshed will be unnecessary and that we will be able to live in a different kind of world. And then so the other aspect of this that I look at in the paper is how do they think the world should be organised in economic terms? And I hear I'm straying out of my normal zone of comfort and to talk a little bit about economics. But the interesting thing about Hindu nationalist economics is that this is economics that I can kind of understand because there aren't equations in it. Um, <laughs> it's just moral economics. 
Their economics is very much fundamentally moral economics. So any economic system has got to fulfil certain important moral and social objectives, and they are not wealth creation. They're very conscious right from the start that Western materialism is corrupting and must be opposed. That economic power is dangerous to societies. Just as Western economic power, British economic power, helps to destroy India, or at least to bring it very low, we need to be very conscious of power of economics, the power of money, the power of wealth. There's this, again, this sort of ambivalence about science and technology, which is, we can talk about questions if you want to. That's useful to a degree, and then there's quite a lot of argument about how much science and how much technology you should have. Savarkar, for example, actually writes a treatise on economics in 1939 in which he says that India ought to embrace the machine age. It ought to have large-scale production, big factories, have large-scale technology. So he advances quite a different view to the one that we traditionally find within the Hindu nationalist corpus. So there's a little bit of difference there. The rest of the Hindu nationalist movement, however, wants something a little bit more like Gandhi's understanding of the village economy, the self-reliant village economy that will eventually lead to the uplift of everybody. And not just an economic uplift, though, but of a moral uplift as well. It's going to improve their lives in that way too. Quite self-consciously, both the RSS and then the BJP appropriate Gandhian socialism. Gandhian socialism gets written in as the objective of the BJP when it gets formed in 1980, but it's also in the political agendas of earlier Hindu nationalist movements as well. What do they want? Again, going back to integral humanism is a really important text because it supplies the basic principles, supposedly the basic principles of Hindu nationalist thinking according to the BJP. What do they want? An economic system that develops our human qualities, essentially, has a different kind of person, man in their language, to Western economic man. And Datupant Thangadi is a really important figure in all of this within the RSS. He's really their most important economic thinker after the 1950s. And he's very long-lived, lives until 2004, and he leads the Swadeshi movement within the RSS that actually becomes very critical of Vajpayee's government in the last years of Thangadi's life. And he becomes opposed to the government because he's very opposed to any kind of materialistic approach to economics. And there's a big, long treatise about ecology and the importance of preserving the planet and all of these kinds of things in his writing. So what I've wanted to do then is to sketch out where the areas of disjuncture are then between conventional understandings of international politics, one that's based on sovereign states, for example, one that's based on utility maximising economics and so on and so forth. That disjuncture between conventional ones and Hindu nationalist ideas of international politics is quite important. The illustration that you've got there is actually from the RSS again, and interesting in lots of different ways. One, that you've got another portrayal of Akan Bharat, of undivided India. As you can see, running all the way from Iran, Afghanistan, all the way through Southeast Asia towards Australia. Two, that it's got very upfront, you can't really see on the slide there, talking about India as a Vishwaguru. So it says at the top left there, Vishwaguru Bharat, so a world guru Bharat in India that's going to lead the world towards a different kind of way of living with each other. You know, those illustrations are very much uppermost in the minds of Hindu nationalists. I wanted to emphasise a couple of other things in the paper as well, and Lou very kindly sent me some comments, which kind of highlighted this as well, and it came out of comments that I've had before, which is that one of the problems with contemporary Hindu nationalists is their ability to appropriate 
thinkers from a much broader tradition. And that includes people like Gandhi, includes people like Aurobindo, Vivekananda, and so on. They draw these figures in to justify their contemporary political project, but also to make their appeal much broader beyond just the hardcore of the RSS. So Modi, for example, very, very rarely refers to Savarkar or Gawalkar in his speeches, even though those are really important uh, Hindu nationalist ideologues. Instead, what he does is he tries to appeal to figures from outside that narrow concentration of Hindu nationalism. And so when he gives his first speech from the ramparts of the Red Fort, for example, in 2014, he goes straight to Aurobindo. And so Aurobindo Lots of quotes about him, lots of discussion that Aurobindo had promised that India would eventually emerge as a Vishwaguru. So the appeal is to Aurobindo, not to Gawalkar, even though Gawalkar says similar sorts of things. And then the last point that I want to sort of hang on at the end of the paper, and I can talk about a bit more, is that there's this big divergence, though, between Hindu nationalist theory and Hindu nationalist practice. We have to recognise that when the BJP was in power in 1998-2004, that their agenda, their economic agenda, was more liberal than, than certainly the current government's one is, arguably, and more liberal than Hindu nationalists would like. And that's one of the reasons, of, obviously, why... Datapant Thangadi and others made some of the opposition within the RSS to the BJP government. And then I can talk about that in more detail, but I also talked about it in the book that I wrote a couple of years ago as well, that state practice and theory don't necessarily align, and there's an interesting relationship between these two different things. Okay, so thank you for listening, and I hope that was of interest. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.